Hi, everyone. Welcome. Good morning. My name is Blair Embry. I am the Community Engagement Manager for Prison Yoga Project, and we are honored this morning to be in conversation with Dr. Sarah King. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Blair. Yeah. So I'm going to read her a short bio, just a, a very quick bio. <laughs> Dr. Sarah King, uh, MA and PhD, pronouns are she, her, they, is a UCLA-trained political and learning scientist, neuroscientist, social entrepreneur, public speaker, and yoga and meditation instructor. She has over 20 years of experience as a research scientist and specializes in the study of the relationship between mindfulness, community healing, medicine, and social justice. Everyone, please welcome Dr. Sarah King. Mm, I feel so, so grateful to be here and so very excited to uh, be in this space of relationship here today. We're so excited to have you. And um, will you lead us and our audience in a centering or mindfulness opportunity? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, anytime. <laughs> Centering is necessary at all times. And so, yes, for those of you who would like to participate, of course, this is completely optional. And any of the instructions that I give um, are invitations. And so please always do uh, whatever feels most compassionate to your body at all times. Uh, so for those of you who would like to join in with us, uh, perhaps you might bring your body to a place of deeper comfort in this moment. Um, maybe you are sitting down, you might be standing up. Uh, some of you may even feel like lying down in order to get your body closer to the earth. There's lots of options, lots of choices here. Just coming to a place where you can begin to feel some support and some alignment in your spine. And some of you may feel comfortable with closing the eyes in this moment, if that helps you to feel more grounded. Uh, but if you do not wish to close the eyes, uh, then you might experiment with simply lowering the eyelids and kind of gazing a couple of inches in front of whatever area of your body is meeting with the earth. And here we have an opportunity to practice a moment of collective embodied solidarity. <clears throat> and we can do that by taking three deep breaths together. These may be three of the deepest breaths you've had the opportunity to take on this particular day. And whether your eyes are opened or closed, perhaps you might begin to send your breath down toward the bottom of your feet or whatever area of your body is touching the earth. And as you send your breath down through the bottom of the body, you might even envision that your breath are creating roots into the earth. 
You may even <clears throat> visualize a root system that is gently flowing out from the body and connecting into the land which holds us at all times. And you can return your breath to a natural cadence and rhythm at any point in time that serves you. And you may bring your attention to the right side of the body. Noticing what is alive in the right side of the body. And then switching your attention to the left side of the body and noticing what's alive there. Are there any subtle differences in each side of the body as you're noticing your aliveness? Maybe one side is a little bit heavier or a little lighter than the other. Can you imagine in your mind's eye right now that you are reaching down with one hand or even both to touch the earth? In your imagination, in your mind's eye, what does it feel like? What does the land underneath you feel like? <clears throat> Perhaps the land is, has a quality of softness like soil. You might imagine running your fingers through soft blades of vivid green grass. Or perhaps your fingers are beginning to touch upon smooth, tiny pebbles. Maybe your hands are beginning to feel into the fine texture of sand. Whatever the earth feels like underneath you in this moment, beginning to connect with this incredibly supportive energy. And as we do that, we can take another deep breath here, <clears throat> sending the breath all the way to the top of the head all the way out the top of the head to meet with the sky above. What is the color of the sky above your head, which also is holding you? Perhaps it is a beautiful cerulean blue. Or maybe there are puffy clouds floating by of any particular size. Connecting our head with the sky <clears throat> and our feet with the earth. And if you've been holding your belly tight towards the spine, can you experiment with allowing the belly to soften and relax? Breathing deeply into the belly. <clears throat> And now we'll take a moment in silence. Just to notice what is now alive in our experience of our awareness of body. 
We who are earth that walks and talks and dances. Is there anything that you no longer need that you might offer up to the earth in this moment? Is there any particular way you need to be resourced? You can call upon the earth now and draw that resourcefulness into you. Taking one more deep breath here, sending it all the way from the bottoms of the feet to the top of the head and down the back side of the body, creating something of a feedback loop of energy and breath between the earth, your body, and the sky. giving thanks and gratitude for this day of being alive together in beloved community. Whenever you are ready, if your eyes were closed, you might begin to ever so slowly tilt the head and the neck upward to gaze at the ceiling or the sky. You may want to raise your arms and your hands above the head to bring a little bit of energy into the body. And gently bring the hands down towards the heart if that feels comfortable. And you may also gently rotate the head and the neck ever so slowly, taking in the room or the space that you're in around you. This is our opportunity to slow down and really relish the experience of grounding with one another. And then when you feel ready, <clears throat> you can join back into the space. Thank you for sharing your practice, everyone. So appreciated. Thank you. So I often, well, I guess there's so much to say about that centering. I, I think I, I just can say thank you. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, I often like to start these conversations. Um, what is your first memory of mindfulness or yoga? Ooh. Hmm. Really good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people uh, may not know this about me, but I was a very rural child. Uh, so I grew up on the East Coast before the age of 14. Um, and my mom loved to, um, you know, during the times when we were actually housed, when we had secure housing, she would find housing in places that was really close to just like hundreds of acres of like cow patties and 
cornfields and apple orchards. I mean, there was just like miles and miles of unobstructed land and earth for me to run around on. Uh, and my mom didn't have um, childcare, access to childcare when we were growing up. <clears throat> so a lot of the time I would be like six and seven years old and uh, she would leave to go to work and I would be by myself to take care of myself for the day, um, which is actually a situation which is uh, unfortunately um, more, more common than perhaps we know. Uh, but miraculously, I was in an incredibly safe place. I would leave the house. I was just like this little kid and I would be running around these abundant farmlands all by myself, but not necessarily by myself because I really, uh, I grew up in a household where I was taught that the earth and the sky and the land and the birds were my family. And so I never felt like I was alone and I would get way uh, close to the earth. I would put my belly on the earth so that I was like eye level with the grass. And I would literally sit breathing with my belly and my chest on the earth for like hours, just determined to watch the flowers grow. And watching the squirrels and, and the bees, and just, there were so many miraculous ways in which nature was always shifting and unfolding in front of my eyes, if I could just be still enough to take it in. And so I have this memory of either being really close on the earth or being uh, climbing up high in a tree and having my back against the tree and feeling <clears throat> the rise and fall of my belly and my chest and and feeling the wind against my skin and the sun and the elements. And it was totally quiet with no one else around. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that would be my first recollection um, of mindfulness because it really was about cultivating this relationship of um, the phenomenal awareness of what was happening inside of my body and how it shifted and changed and moved with everything that was happening around me until, you know, I, I, I really felt like I, I lost my sense of self in those places. And, and I was completely one um, with everything that was happening around me. So, yeah, I think that was the early buds of my practice. I always find it so beautiful of um, how there were always these strings and moments or maybe years, right, um, in our early childhood uh, that inform, you know, who we are today or our, our future practices. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I have this, uh, this really powerful memory of being about five years old and I was sitting in a patch of grass and there were these incredible teeny tiny uh, little flowers that would only blossom in April. There were these gorgeous purple and yellow kind of orchid looking flowers. Um, I remember I was just so delighted to know that the earth had this rhythm and timing that there was this one particular time of year where I would get to experience this amazing growth. And as I was sitting there looking at those flowers, I remember this thought came, it was, it was less of a thought, more of a feeling that arose inside of my body. And I remember saying out loud, 
I am love. I am love. That is who I am. That is what I am here for, is to be who I am, which is love. And so to be five years old and have words like that just suddenly emanate from my body. And it was so crystal clear, like that is my purpose is to be love. Um, It was really amazing. And um, it wasn't too long after that, that I realized that um, talking in this way was not acceptable in a school setting. Mm. And so it was really interesting to um, sort of uh, notice what kinds of knowledge and intuition about who I was and what my capacity was in terms of my awareness, what it was when I was five and the way that that shifted when I entered into school. And I learned that in that place, my purpose was um, uh, meant to be something different. Were there other moments in your childhood um, that shifted your awareness of the world as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, there were oh, so many different um, moments. I uh, So <clears throat> I know this is something that uh, was uh, spoken about um, uh, in the uh, announcement for, for this session that we have here today. Um, but yeah, when I was five years old, this realization that who I was, was love was everything to me. And that was how I moved through the world. Um, and that was also around the time that, uh, my family and I, I lived in a single, um, mother household and I have two siblings. My older brother was 13 years older than me. And my older sister, Yesha is eight years older than me. So I was the baby of the family. Um, And I remember that that was around the first time that we started to really struggle with housing insecurity. Um, It was around the first time that I experienced eviction. And so I have this, I didn't really have that many possessions. You know, when you're around like five or six years old, I probably had like some teddy bears and, you know, some dolls or something like that. But all of it was, it was mine. It was important to me. And I remember one day uh, coming home and there was a piece of paper on the door and I saw the look on my mom's face um, that it was a notice from the sheriff that we had to get out within 48 hours. And I remember my mom like running around the house, just like grabbing. We literally, we didn't have a car. So we just had to take what we could hold in our hands and we had to leave on foot. And I remember her grabbing things from around the house and just throwing them into the trash, into the dumpster out back, along with like most of my stuffed animals and possessions. I literally left with a backpack that was like that big that could fit on my body with whatever I could fit into it. And I remember the feeling of my world really crashing down, just trying to understand like, okay, so how is it that this, there's this person who's called a sheriff and they can come and they can just kick us out of our home. And now we're homeless. Um, And I remember walking through that neighborhood and it was it was just, it was just so incredible. I was looking at all of these homes, all, all of these apartment complexes. And I was thinking to myself, 
well, why do they have a place to live? And, and we don't like what, what exactly is, is happening here. Right. Um, and I had this like very kernel of awareness that like we were one of the few African-American families in the area. And, um, when we went to the welfare office, the vast majority of the people who were there, who were requesting service, homeless, homeless services looked like us, but everyone else in the neighborhoods around us um, did not look like us. They had paler skin. They were white bodied people. And this was really the beginning of, it was like the inception of um, my racialized knowledge in my body. It was the beginning of my understanding of how class and race um, come together in our nation to really uh, constrict the opportunities that are available for people to just have the resources that they need to live their daily lives. Um, and I remember it was around that period of time that we had to move to another city. Um, and shortly after that, I have this really incredibly, one of the most vivid memories of my life um, of my brother being arrested for the first time. Uh, so my older brother, his name is Yeshaya and I, he like Yeshaya was my sun and my moon and my stars. He was like everything. He was like so big and strong. And I remember one of the favorite things that we used to do at that time, because I was so little, he would place his arm in a doorway and I would hop up on it and I would literally dangle off of his arm like a monkey and like play on him like a jungle gym. Like that, he was just, he was just so incredibly, all I thought of him was that he was my protector. He was so fun and playful and his sense of humor could just like light up a room. Um, and he was the person who would draw me any animal that I requested and I would like tack them up all over my room. And he was my superhero, right? So it was also around this period of time um, that one day in the middle of the night, this was like very shortly after um, we um, had just regained an apartment. Um, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and the police broke into our home without a warrant. And I'm six years old. And I remember the sound of him literally being dragged out of the house and down the stairs. And my sister and I ran up to our bedroom windows and we just plastered our faces against the windows. It was like, I couldn't understand. I was like, am I dreaming? Am I having a nightmare? And I just have this memory seared inside of my body of what it felt like um, watching them take out their batons and beat him senseless before shoving him into the car. And I, my mom was downstairs just like totally like, like screaming and distraught. And I think part of the impact that that had on me and my body and my nervous system was that prior to that, I, prior to our experience of homelessness and prior to this experience of his arrest, um, as I said, I had this belief, I had this knowing inside of my body that I was love and I was meant to give love. 
But part of that knowing came from this like fundamental safety that I felt inside of my body, right? Um, I had this, this knowing prior to that, um, that there were certain things that, uh, that were givens, um, things like having the ability um, to have enough food, things like having a roof over my head, like having a school to go to, uh, like knowing that no one would um, come to kick us out of our home or enter into our home to do anything to us. All of those things, all those beliefs that I had were completely shattered within the span of a few months. Um, and then I remember afterwards, my mother and I going to try to visit Yeshaya um, in the jail, in the, in, the, in the facility in which they had taken him to. Um, and I wasn't allowed to go inside with my mom because I was just a little one. And so you can imagine me, I'm like, I'm six years old and I'm sitting all by myself in this like maximum, you know, uh, what, what do they call it? Maximum um, penitentiary. Security. Uh, maximum security penitentiary. Yeah. And I'm literally just feeling inside of my body, like what, what this place feels like have this growing conception inside of my body, like of where Yeshaya is. Okay. He's, he's in a cage. Okay. Um, we're not allowed to see him. Um, <clears throat> there are all of these people, all of these guards, all of these people with weapons, um, who won't let me speak to him. Um, and we have no idea the next time that he'll be able to be in our lives again. And um, so that's one of the things that I really wanted to talk about in this space today was it was the first time in my life, this rapid succession of events, which started with our um, losing our home, that I became aware like very keenly aware of the experience of suffering inside of my body. Um, and I started to really ask myself a lot of questions like, okay, so this suffering that I'm experiencing inside of my body, I don't feel that I have the capacity, this this pain that I'm feeling right now, this emotional pain, right? The psychological pain, even though I didn't put it that way when I was six, but that was what was happening. I didn't have the capacity or the tools to access it and take it outside of me and put it somewhere else. It was just here. And I was realizing now I have to live with this. Mm. And the sensation that I, that used to be my baseline of, I am love, I'm, I'm pure loving awareness. I don't know where that is anymore because now there's so much pain inside of this body. And so that was really the first moment for me. Um, it was like a deep internal philosophical struggle of like, well, who am I? 
am I the sum total of my experiences of suffering? Is that all that I have in this life? Is that all that's left for me? Um, and while sitting inside of that prison, I really started to think, well, where does a place like this come from? Why, why is this necessary? You know, and why in the world um, would someone uh, look at Yeshaya, my big brother, who I saw as like my hero, my superhero? Um, why do they feel it necessary to control him to this extent? You know, why do they consider him to be dangerous? Um, and that was really the beginning of a very deep internal inquiry for me that really lasted for, um, and has lasted for, um, my entire life, you know, like who, who in this society do we consider to be unworthy? Um, who in this society do we consider, um, has to be thrown away? Um, whose suffering do we deem to not be of importance? Um, and why is it, why, why is it that, uh, we don't have a system that seeks, um, to create rehabilitation and well-being and healing, healing. That was really the beginning of my journey of, of asking myself, you know, okay, like, what is it going to take? What is it going to take for me to come back to this embodied feeling inside of me that I that I used to know was who I really am? That who I am is, is love, is loving awareness. And what is it going to take for really the entire society to come back to that place? And that, that I would say you know, at six years of age was the kernel of everything that motivates my research and, um, and everything that I do in this world, those questions. Just really wanting to take a, a moment to respond Thank you for coming and sharing your personal story. I know that you had shared earlier that a lot of the spaces that you're in, um, you don't get to share this story. Mm -hmm. And from what you just shared now, I see how um, it's the seed of your motivation and your work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So... I know that you actually, okay, so let's talk about some of your work, right? I know that you have um, this really beautiful list of accolades <laughs> and it, and it, um, there's this, there's two sides to it, right? Like you have Buddhist mindfulness, meditation, yoga, and you have science. Yeah, yeah. And then you also have um, your activism too, this social justice element that really I feel like kind of binds these two. 
Um, and so I know that in our conversation too, we had a really, um, you just have like such a beautiful and eloquent way of talking about social justice. Um, mm. and so maybe that's a, a thread that we can start to pull on. Um, cause I feel like that's, um, you know, the, the really the root of your work was, um, your childhood experiences and your family and loss and suffering. Um, so will you tell us about kind of this, how you're pulling apart even the, the, the container of social justice? Yes. Yes. I absolutely would love to. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you <clears throat> in this uh, gentle inquiry that you're opening up. You know, I think that um, uh, one of the first things, one of the first kind of, threads that I began to unravel in this journey of kind of like deconstructing the meaning of social justice, I started to um, ask myself, you know, what is the sort of root place? What was, what was the first place in which my brother Yeshaya began to um, experience some kind of story being handed to him that he wasn't good enough? Uh, that he was dangerous and, you know, he was like a six foot three, like huge muscular, like boxer, you know, and like a dark skinned African-American young boy. Like when, when, at what point did he start to receive this message? And that was the first time that I learned about the kindergarten to prison pipeline. It was the first time that I started to begin to learn that African-American boys in particular are penalized to a far more severe degree throughout the entire trajectory of their education. They are really oftentimes treated as though um, they are predators inside of the very system that is supposed to be uh, socializing them and educating them and offering them opportunities to learn and to grow and to connect with their purpose, right? So when you're being treated this way from an exquisitely young age, by adults, by people who have control and power and authority, right? Um, And when you're growing up in a society um, where the news is also reflecting and turning out these stories about, um, you know, the animality and the predatory nature of Black men. And when you're also growing up in a society which is uh, systemically oppressing you, meaning from an institutional level, uh, all of your opportunities to find the resources in which you need to thrive are being constrained and taken away from you and from your communities, right? Because of the persistence of historical racism, right? He really, I really started to discover that he grew up in, in an environment that was really designed to, um, promote a certain type of psychological violence inside of his body, right? And he was uh, reacting to the violence of the society that was around him, right? I started to uncover, oh, it's not because he was broken from the start. It's not that he was born broken. The society that he was born into, this is what was being reflected to him. And I'm not saying that this is the case with all African-American men, but I am saying that there is a predominance of this experience and that when we see 
uh, African, young African-American man or really any African-American man who has created some success for himself in this life, we have to understand that he has had to move through incredibly almost insurmountable odds mm. in order to get to that place, right? Um, and it really, uh, the success of our young African-American men has so much to do with the ways in which their family and their community are able to hold them through this process of navigating through systemic oppression, right? Um, so I want to highlight the fact that there is an incredible amount of um, wealth in the in the incredible love that is contained inside of the African-American community. But sometimes, right, sometimes that love and the support and those structures aren't enough to battle against this incredible mountain of systemic oppression, which we are called to face and to climb every single day, right? Um, so I became really fascinated with looking at the education system and what is it going to take to heal these incredible wounds of systemic oppression that still exist in the education system today? I mean, uh, I remember reading that our education system is more segregated today along the lines of race, and this is for all races, than it was in the 1970s. And I think that this is really important to note today in this space because, um, you know, uh, I remember uh, seeing that um, Barack Obama recently uh, tweeted something. Um, he was expressing his his discontent and his frustration <clears throat> with the overturning of um, Roe versus Wade. And he was expressing the manner in which this was the overturning of this law in the Supreme Court is going to have a disproportionately negative impact, particularly on families of, of color in the United States who are already facing so much marginalization. And there was a Republican senator who responded to this tweet and said, and now how about we repeal Brown versus um, the Board of Education? which is the law which allowed for the integration of our schooling system and was really incredibly pivotal in the creation of so many of the civil rights that all marginalized groups of humans face in the United States today. So I think it is so important to, to say and to note on this day that there is a particular strain of violence that is happening inside of this country right now that is seeking to repeal so many of the civil rights, which we on the outside of supposedly the outside of the carceral state enjoy. Right. Um, so for me, looking at the education system, looking at um, what is happening inside of that space, what is actually being learned inside of that space is so incredibly important. And <clears throat> I reached this space of frustration in the course of, uh, you know, really like looking at what was being taught because I realized, oh, you know, the primarily what's being taught in our education system um, is information that we're taking in on the cognitive level. Mm. 
And we have all of these issues around us, right? Supposedly when we, when we're being schooled, when we're being educated, we're in that place in order that we can learn how to become uh, citizens who are going to be able to go out and be empowered to do something positive about all of these incredibly harmful situations of marginalization and violence and abuse in our nation, right? That is what we're supposed to be being prepared for inside of our schools. And so in our 400 something year history of being the United States, right? Because this, this land, this land existed as Turtle Island long before it was the United States, but in that particular 400 year history, right? Why haven't we gotten further? Why are these problems still so entrenched? Why is racism still so entrenched, right? And homophobia and transphobia, like why are all these issues of hatred still so entrenched? And I had this aha. I was like, oh, because we are not being taught how to feel. Mm. In our education system, I had this aha, what is missing is an embodied education, an education that connects us to our soma, to the somatics of what is happening inside of me and how is what is happening inside of this biology and physiology? How is what is happening in my mental health and my psychology? How is what is happening in my relationships deeply embedded and related to everything that is happening in the environment, in society, in culture. There's an incredible feedback loop from individual to collective awareness. And how do we cultivate that? And at the very same time that I was having these questions, I was involved in my own um, yoga and meditation practice that I was using in order to heal from the suffering and the wounds of my experience with the prison industrial complex and the ways in which there was deep, deep suffering and a feeling of imprisonment inside of my suffering in my body that I was working through in these practices. And that was my next aha. I was like, wait, is yoga and meditation happening inside of schools? And that was really the beginning of um, this journey that I took of researching yoga and meditation inside of schools that was happening specifically with youth of color, Mm. youth of color who are coming from families that are most oftentimes deeply impacted by the prison industrial complex, right? And I really wanted to know um, how they were being impacted by this particular form of an awareness-based education, right? Like what was the healing that was happening inside of that space? And the thing that I found, right? I was researching um, middle schoolers. These kids were 12 years old and they were schooling me, okay? Like they had all the things to tell me and they were incredible teachers to me. And one of the things that I found, because these were all youth of color, right? And they all came from a background that was exquisitely similar to my own upbringing in terms of the the violence that I had faced in this body. And they said to me, they were like, listen, I have Twitter. I have YouTube. I know what's going on in the news. Mm. I'm getting my own education outside of this school. I know that there is a reason why people who look like me are facing these circumstances. 
I know, do you know where, do you know where I think that I am headed? I'm headed to where my cousin is. He or she are in jail right now. That's what I think my future is about. That's what I think this school is preparing me for. I don't believe this whole lie that they're selling me, that they're preparing me for college. I know where I'm going because I see where my family has gone. Mm. And then they said, and then they expect me to sit and take this yoga and meditation to be calm. Right. And for some of them, yes, it did have a calming impact on their nervous system, but for other youth, they were incensed and they wanted that yoga and meditation intervention out of their school because it was connecting them so deeply with this experience of pain, the pain and the suffering of marginalization inside of their bodies, but they weren't being given any tools to connect that to well, how do I be empowered to do something about this? You just want me to sit in this pain, but you're not connecting it to this need I have for justice in my body, justice in my community, justice in my family, justice for those people in my family who are incarcerated. And they were crystal clear about that at 12 years of age. So... I just really have to thank them for this, this, this journey that, you know, they, they, they were just, they were so, they were so amazing as my teachers. That's something I really want to highlight on this call is that our youth, the youth of this nation, the youth of this world are incredible educators in and of their own right. They are so full of rich wisdom and we're not turning to them actively we're not uplifting them to educate us in terms of what it is that we know um and so part of what it is that they taught me is that they taught me about what justice is not they taught me justice is not what is punitive it's not about how we punish one another it's not about policing one another it's not about surveillance That's not what justice is. And so when I really took that lesson from them about what justice is not, I had to ask myself, well, what, what is justice and where does it come from? What is social justice, right? Um, especially when we live in a nation where, um, you know, white supremacists, white nationalists are being actively compared to people who are protesting for social justice as though what they want is one and the same. That ain't right. That ain't right. (laughs) So when I look at that situation, what became really clear to me is that we need a new definition of social justice, right? One where we understand, this is just in my thinking, what comes from my research and my thinking Justice is loving awareness in action. It's loving awareness in action. It's anywhere that you find that. And so part of the reason why that's so important is because number one, it's rooted in love, which is the story of who we truly are, how we're truly meant to behave towards ourselves and towards one another, right? 
but it is also rooted in awareness, which means that it comes from the body. Justice is something that justice is something that lives inside of the body, right? It is how we are aware on a moment-to-moment basis of the ways in which various forms of violence live inside of us. And so that's part of the reason why yoga and mindfulness as contemplative practices are so powerful for the cultivation of justice, of social justice, right? Because these are practices which get us into the space of really being able to ask ourselves, okay, like what is alive? What is present inside of my body? What are the different kinds of suffering and pain that are happening in my body that are actually deeply related to the issues of injustice that live in our society? And can I be in loving conversation? Can I bring loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness and gratitude? Can I bring these qualities to all of these places that are housing so much pain and aggression and violence inside of me? And as we are in this practice of awareness, we begin to root back to that place of our truth inside of our bodies. And it transforms everything about us. It transforms the structure of our brains. It transforms our minds. It transforms our nervous systems. It alleviates all different manner of diseases. It transforms our relationships. It can transform our communities, right? But I think the most important part is that we are practicing yoga and meditation with the intention that whatever healing we are cultivating inside of ourselves, we are giving to others. Because so long as it stays this sort of like individuated, like for me, me, me kind of thing, um, then it's very limited in its capacity to truly heal all the things that, um, that we're facing today. Mm. And, uh, and that's what my research is about. I just feel particularly quiet today. And um, I think that your study and your words are deeply important and impactful for not only the work that we do, but for our larger community as well. So one, thank you. Thank you for your work again and, and your study. And um And it's really interesting of um, how healing we are. I feel like when we don't focus on the body, we like you were mentioning, right? We live in this cognitive state, right? And, And we're unable to untie the knots of our world because they exist here. Right. We're out in this space trying to solve problems that don't originate necessarily here. Yeah. And, you know, and and I'm like thinking of 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 numbers and statistics and the violence that lives um, in the bodies of 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 all people. Yes. And when we don't engage with our own 
suffering and the violence that we have perpetrated or the violence that has been perpetrated on us, um, it really collapses our ability to feel compassion for others. Yes. Because we have not sat with our own suffering. Yes. So there are, and I mean, I think, you know, like when I look at political leaders or leaders within communities, um, I'd say probably for the most part, and maybe that's, you know, misspeaking, but um, it's a lot of people in denial of their own suffering. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and then I feel like, and what I'm hearing you say too, is that like within, within the denial of our own suffering, um, there's pointing fingers then. Yes. Right. And it's like, um, it's, it's further avoidance. I'm going to avoid my own pain and suffering. Um, and you like, and that's when you become kind of this like predator, you're like looking Mm -hmm. right like you're like looking for um you're looking for the problem when you haven't looked inside yeah yeah and there is an epidemic of that happening in our nation really all over the world an epidemic of of numbing you know there um throughout the pandemic especially I saw countless news articles about the pandemic of loneliness. Mm. And there were a number of people who talked about how it wasn't necessarily like, yes, the pandemic did. um, What the pandemic did was it exposed the loneliness that was already there. And we could say that, yes, it made it worse because we were so isolated from one another. But it was really the first time that we had this opportunity collectively to sit with ourselves, to be with ourselves, and this palpable feeling of loneliness. And one of the things that I know from the world of neuroscience is that loneliness is painful. Mm. It's literally painful. Uh, there's such a thing called uh, a social death. Social death is what happens when we have the embodied feeling, the somatic feeling of disconnect. Mm. It starts from the feeling of disconnect inside of ourselves, disconnect from who we truly are, right? And we engage in all of these various activities, right? You can look at all the statistics on addiction, all the ways in which we are addicted. Um, And a lot of the things that we do, whether this is being addicted to drugs or addicted to entertainment or to shopping or to like whatever it is, is a distraction from the pain. It's a distraction from the suffering. And the interesting thing about the brain is that it processes the loneliness of social death in the same way as physical pain. Mm. It doesn't know the difference. So when we are disconnected from one another, it literally feels like we're dying. And so in so many ways, I think that the greatest thing that we can do right now in terms of this question of like, well, how can I be empowered to do something about what's happening in our society right now. One of the most powerful things that we can do is connect to our awareness. 
first, first and foremost, and say, what is alive here in this body? Because awareness is a faculty of the human experience that is always present. It's always there to be connected to. And one of the easiest ways that we can connect to the fact that we are aware is through the breath. And I think that's incredible. Like that's so incredible because that what that means fundamentally is um, <clears throat> if you are alive, then you are aware. And if you are aware, then you are empowered. You're empowered to create incredible embodied transformation, transformation at the cellular level through these practices and not just yoga and meditation. Some people are really able to connect to their embodied awareness through dance or drumming, you know, or playing music. There's so many different um, cultural traditions that connect us to our body and to our breath. And that really begin to like move this energy through us, right? Mm. But also practices that connect us to one another, right? We are craving intimacy. We are craving relationship. And one of the things that <clears throat> I want to say in this moment is I don't want to uh, vilify loneliness, right? Because loneliness is a part of the human experience. It's actually a a very natural part of the human experience. But I have this question around, um, how are we being in relationship to our loneliness? Are we angry at it? You know, are we enraged by it? Are we numbing out because of it? <clears throat> or are we in compassionate relationship to our loneliness and our grief? and our rage and all of those big, big feelings inside of our bodies that can cause us so much discomfort, the more that we can cultivate a spirit of unconditional friendliness towards all of these emotions and say, as they are rising moment by moment, I see you, I'm not going anywhere, I'm with you. What do you have to say? What do you have to teach me? There is this very natural unfurling that happens when we're in that relationship. Um, and it is this shift towards true connection with ourselves. With the source of something that is bigger than who we are as individuals. Mm. And I think that when we're in the process of turning towards that, like literally the source of all awareness right, that we can become um, connected to the source of, you know, the energy of the entire earth, the energy of our galaxy, the energy of the whole universe. We can be in this remembrance that we are so actually far from alone, but it's a practice. And it weaves back in, right, to this, this story of interdependence of you with your belly on the earth. Yeah. And and having the the spaciousness and the safety to be able to do that, to have the container to be able to do that. Um, it all feeds each other. Exactly. 
I really want to tell a particular story um, about about my brother Yeshaya, um, who's no longer with us today, um, but he's definitely here in my heart at all times. And I remember when um, the next time that I saw Yeshaya after his first um, the first time that he went to jail, I was around like eight or nine years old, and I remember. Um, I could perceive with my body that a lot of things had happened to him there, but he wouldn't tell me about it. But there was an incredible amount of grief and pain inside of him that I could sense. And I was wondering in that moment in time, if that was all that he had become, what had happened to him inside of that jail. I was wondering if maybe I had lost him forever. And so <clears throat> one morning he wakes me up and he says, come on, we're going for a walk. And I was game to do anything he wanted to do, right? So I'm like running next to him and <clears throat> he takes me to this incredible lake that was um, near our apartment. And the lake was beautiful, but it was also kind of gross. It had like a lot of like algae and just like goopy green, like who knows what that is. It wasn't the kind of lake that you were necessarily going to like dip a toe in. I'll tell you that, right? It was more like you look at it from afar and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. And you get up close and you're like, oh, it's kind of gross. And there was a massive willow tree. I mean, this thing was so huge next to the lake. And he brings me over to the lake and he was like, there's something that I want to show you. And I'm, I'm looking and I don't see any animals. I don't see any fish. I'm like, okay, what, what's, what's the big surprise, right? And he has this sparkle in his eyes. I'm like, what, what's happening here? He's not saying anything. And he slowly walks over to this willow tree. And again, he's a really big guy, right? He's like, huh, he's like covered with like tattoos and everything like that. And he grabs a hold of the biggest chunk of this willow tree like with his whole body he was like raw he like monk and he runs backwards and then he runs full speed and starts swinging on these willow branches right over the lake and i'm standing there like oh my god what's happening <clears throat> and at the apex of his swing he looks me dead in my eye with this huge grin and let's go and he makes the hugest splash in the middle of this lake, right? And it is just like gross. They're just like algae and all kind of manner of like flotsam and jetsam, like all. And he like, and he crawls like slowly out of this lake and he's just like covered with all manner of everything, right? He looks so gross. And I fell on the ground laughing. I laughed so hard. I didn't know if I was going to survive that laughter. It was like that kind of like, I'm curling into myself because like my guts are like shaking so hard. And he's like, he's like shaking all the stuff all around him. And <clears throat> he transmitted to me such a powerful lesson in that moment. Because I think he could see in my eyes that I was wondering if he was lost because of his experiences. I had this question, like, do our experiences make us who we are? Is that the totality of who we are? Is what happens to us in these bodies in this lifetime, does that then become this prison that we are caged by and we have no alternative? That's just who you are. You have this incredible suffering happen to you. And now you are this grief and this pain. 
And he showed me, it was like an incredible Zen teaching about the power of letting go, about the power of play and of humor and of delight and of the random, right? And I was just so amazed that he could come out of, I mean, he was in solitary confinement for months in this place. And the fact that I could see such incredible joy radiating out of his eyes towards me, that was his way. He didn't, he didn't necessarily have the words he showed me with his actions. He was like, here I am. I'm still here. I'm still in here, right? This is how you be. This is how you live life. No matter what happens, no matter what your experience is, you always have access to spontaneity and to joy and to aliveness hmm. in any given moment. And I will never, ever forget that. I carry that memory with me every single day. And I think that that is so important because there is so much hopelessness today that I want to acknowledge that exists in our society. And, um, and at the same time that we're coming into contact with that hopelessness, I think it is important uh, that we use the medicine of being in the moment and understanding that we are so much more than our experiences. There's so much more than that. And that is part of what is going to move us through these times. Uh, a re-identification. Yes. Yeah, precisely. And also to speak to it too, um, thank you for sharing your brother's life with us. I'm so sorry. I can feel and see how great of a loss this is. Um, and thank you for keeping him alive in our community and that we get to witness this great um, joy mm. um, that he brought to so, so many people. Absolutely. He absolutely did. I mean, he was an incredible musician, an incredible artist. Um, he was so talented at so many different things, just naturally. I remember he had this incredible ability. It was very mystical to me. He could like, he was very Dr. Doolittle. Like he could call any animal in his direction. He, anytime you opened up his closet, there would be like ravens and squirrels and rabbits and snakes and all manner. And he could just like stand in the middle of a forest and he would be like, come to me. I don't know what he would do, but like the animals would just come to him and he could just whisper them into his home. And Part of the reason why I want to talk about that is because, um, you know, it's so important for me, for people to know that, um, that he's so much a part of what motivates this joyful work, this love centered work. Like he, he is somebody who, right. He was a blood, he was a gangster, right. He was, he was, he was literally a part of the gang bloods in Compton, California. Right. Mm. In so many ways, he is, he was this, uh, uh, he could be depicted as um, the predatory black male monster, right? That the media oftentimes wants us to believe needs to be locked away, right? This is the threat, right? That we need to control. But he had so much radiant beauty and love and talent and joy inside of him. And I want to encourage us to think about 
how it is that we are precisely that. We are locking away so many um, beautiful beings who are incredible resources of joy and of wisdom and of love. And if he hadn't lived the life that he had lived and gone through the things he'd gone through, I would not be doing what I am doing today, right? We, we, I, that's something that I hope that we really, um, that we really consider um, as we're in this work of abolishing the carceral state because we need each other. And so long as we are locking away and controlling and therefore disconnecting ourselves from an entire population, that is also the extent to which we are disconnected from ourselves. I think. I agree. Thank you. Thank you so much, Blair. And with the time that we do have left, I would love to engage our audience too, if anyone has um, any questions. So you can drop your questions into the Q&A box um, and I'll read them out loud so um, anyone on the recording um, can hear this later too. Uh, the first question that we have is, I'm curious how you offer the young students a path through the pain to transform it and to discover what social and, and to discover what justice feels like in themselves. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, the truth of that story is that, uh, unfortunately, uh, in academia, we are taught that in order to be empirical, in order to be scientists, we have to be objective, right? So what does it mean to be objective? It means that you are standing at the outskirts of a phenomena that you are observing, that you are bearing witness to, and you are there to report on what you see, mm. not there to actually create some sort of transformation or healing or empowerment. And so that is a, to me, that was a very painful part of the experience of how colonized uh, academia is, right? Because in this body, right, everything about who I am and what I know about my practice of decolonizing this body says, that it is so important, any amount of healing that this body feels has to be given. There has to be a feedback loop where you're, where you're offering it up, right? That's a decolonizing practice. And at the time, that was not something that I was allowed to do. So I was able to offer up my presence to the students, my listening, my full-bodied listening, compassionate, loving presence. Um, did I feel like that was enough? Did I feel completely empowered in that situation? I did not. Um, and so that's just like my honest answer. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm so happy to not <laughs> be in graduate school anymore because I am now in a position where I can actively cultivate healing environments for people where um, it's not about like 
I'm particularly creating any kind of healing, but it's more like I'm creating the space where people can access their own innate capacity to heal themselves Mm. inside of whatever space it is that I'm curating for those purposes. And that does feel like a much more empowered relationship. Um, And that is how I wish to, to move forward in the world from now on. So I, I thank you for um, asking that question. And when you, you know, when you describe being an observer, there then is this unspoken understanding or thought is that you, you, you are separate. Mm-hmm. You are separate. And so it, it denies our interconnection once again. Yeah. 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 It really, it really does. I am. Um, I remember this moment when I was getting ready to defend my dissertation. So for those of you who don't know, in order to graduate from a PhD program, you know, you have like a, a panel of, of, of experts, professors who you have to defend. That's the, the word they use, defend. It's, it already like sets up this kind of like combative atmosphere. Um, your argumentation about your data. And for me, it was just sort of like all levels of ridiculous. I'm just like, why do you want me to like defend healing? You want me to defend loving kindness? Okay, let's get in here. Um, but I remember there was this moment at the very beginning of that defense when I wanted to invoke my brother's name and his experience as the reason for why I cared to do that work to begin with. So I started to tell a story about him and and I remember um I was, I was shushed. Um, someone on my panel said, Shh, um, we came here to hear about the data. So again, there's that disconnect, right? There's, there is this, you, you are, you are unctioned inside of the space of academia to disconnect yourself as a human, as a person, with all of your feelings, supposedly, with all of your experiences, your rich life experiences from the places and the persons that you're interacting with in order to engage in research. And I think I want to name that in this space as one of the harms that continues to proliferate all the way from kindergarten through whatever level of education that you are seeking. This is what is being asked, is that we disconnect from what makes us who we are. Mm. Thank you. Um, We have another thank you in the Q&A. It's thank you. And yes, we constantly face such boundaries and just our presence and permission offers other agents, others agency. I appreciate you sharing that reality. Absolutely. And we have uh, another question. um, And maybe this will be the the last one. And and I want to give you the, the last word for anything that hasn't been shared or spoken to today. Um, can you speak to how, uh, can you speak to how to balance the fostering of opening to love, healing and connection with incarcerated populations through yoga with potentially exposing vulnerabilities that may be unsupported or detrimental after leaving class? So basically I, th- I think the, this question or this idea is speaking to um, offering these practices in incarcerated settings and then going, you know, going back to uh, traumatizing 
situations. Mm. 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 Well, I think Julianne, uh, you are really highlighting a deeply systemic issue. Um, and it's, it's interesting that what you're saying is very similar to the issue, uh, perhaps not of the same severity, but the issue that a lot of um, youth of color who um, are, who live in uh, communities where there is uh, a lot of lack of safety due to gang violence or what is happening inside of their schools. I know that that was um, personally my experience with where I went to high school. Um, I went to high school in Compton, which is an incredibly rich and vibrant and beautiful community. And yes, there were times when we would hear about kids who didn't make it to school because they got caught up in some gang warfare and they were shot on their way to school. And that was the reality that I had to live with when I was in high school was this feeling of a constant threat and lack of safety. And it wasn't until later on that I was able to understand that those, those communities were designed to be that way. Right. Um, by these systems of institutionalized racism um, that have taken away so many resources and shipped guns into these communities, as well as shipped drugs into these communities in order to create what we now call or refer to at times a ghetto, right? Um, and so I have to be in the practice of admitting what I don't know. Um, I don't know what to do about what happens, the situation of what happens with these vulnerabilities and like what is arising inside of people's bodies and then they have to go back, right, into a situation that isn't safe. Um, I think that, that is something that really needs to be attended to, right? What are the safe spaces? What are the spaces for rehabilitation and healing that exists and is that even possible for that to exist inside of a prison, right? Because if, if it were a space that was truly about rehabilitation, then the entire facility would be about the creation of safety and choice, safety and choice in order to promote healing. So I think that you're pointing out a really incredible wound in a way in which people can, yes, be re-traumatized. Um, yeah, you're pointing to a really huge issue and a problem and something does need to be done about it. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, and this isn't a plug. This is something that we do approach in our foundational training as well, um, because teaching in an incarcerated setting is different than teaching in a yoga studio, right? And so um, it's about the way that you hold space. It's about how you cue. It's um, the poses that you offer, um, right? Because we can't make someone feel safe. Um, that is upon an individual's um, uh, willingness of how 
deep their practices, how much they want to open. Um, and so I'll drop the link um, to our foundational training as well, because these are absolutely conversations that we have. Um, and it is why we suggest um, doing uh, training with us. Our, our foundational training is um, almost 40 hours long um, because there is a real possibility of doing harm if you just go into an incarcerated setting or an outside of a studio setting, working with um, vulnerable and marginalized populations without having um, tools and understanding of, um, of your uh, intention versus impact. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. 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 So important. So important. And I can't wait to take, you're training myself. That is something that I am so, so incredibly excited and, and honored to do. Um, and I just want to express my deep and profound gratitude to Prison Yoga Project for all of the work, the incredible heart-centered work that you're doing in the world. I feel as though as an organization, you represent the meaning of loving awareness in action right? Which is justice. So what is social justice? It's loving awareness in action in the context of our relationships. And you're creating this incredible relational space for people to connect to their birthright, which is their humanity, um, which is so powerful. And, and I'm, I'm just deeply in gratitude for everything that you do and, and for inviting me to, to be in conversation on this day. It's been very meaningful. We are so happy for your work, the depth of your heart, your compassion. I'm so excited for you to be a facilitator for our organization. Um, and really just like, I want to speak to how grateful I am for this community too, right? Like, um, there are so many people within our core team and then our facilitators, right? So like we have programs all around the world and then everyone who shows up to these calls and is part part of this sangha, this continual weaving um, is what allows both of us to be able to show up um, in this work um, and weave the things that we do find um, important together. Um, you know, our, our personal practices, um, our practice um, that is for the benefit of all beings. Um, and so really just this, this third jewel, um, that we get to hold. So thank you so much for being here today. And, um, and if that, if that wasn't the last word, I do want to offer you, um, anything that, that wasn't said today that you want to speak to or anything that you want to leave our audience with. Hmm. I just want to express my my appreciation for everyone that showed up to this talk today um, and for all of the comments that were offered, for all of the stories and the questions that were offered to anybody who watches this recording. Uh, thank you so very much for your support of this incredibly invaluable work. Um, and I want to offer up two quotes that I have on um, post-it notes. I, I have a little bit of a post-it note addiction. So there's like a cloud of post-it notes like all around my office, but there are two particular quotes that I keep above my computer. And I look at every time I sit down to do this uh, sacred labor, mm. right? Cause our labor is, is sacred, all of it, right? Um, and the first quote is by 
um, a very dear friend of mine um, named Davion Zaire. And he says, by birth on earth, we are valid and worthy of love. And the second quote is by another dear friend and collaborator of mine, Orlando Villarraga. And he says, courage is the bridge between hope and justice. And so I'm wishing us great remembrance of who we really are, which is love and profound courage to help us navigate through these times. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone.